the uh, title of, of this uh, presentation uh, has to do with hormones and emotional intelligence. And of course, uh, the emotional part is something that we deal with on a regular basis uh, as we run residential depression and anxiety recovery programs. And by the time they get to us, it's their last stop. Uh, they have uh, been uh, going to uh, usually a lot of other places, and they've had a lot of um, workup uh, done here and there, uh, but uh, we want to leave no stone unturned, and so we can understand everything that's going on biochemically with them, as well as relationally and in other ways. And so uh, since this is their last um, stop, uh, and many of them, them uh, uh, many of those individuals will tell us this. Um, you know, it's kind of no pressure on us when they say, "If this doesn't work, I'll just go home and kill myself." Uh, but we've had that happen. We've had that said uh, multiple times. And of course, um, if it didn't work, we wouldn't let them go home and kill themselves. <laughs> uh, but uh, it is. Um, it is something that's been gratifying to be able to see a number of um, positive changes made as a result of hormonal influences on emotional health. First of all, emotional intelligence, what is it? It's understanding your emotions and the emotions of others and responding to those emotions, how? In a healthy way. And what is a hormone? It's a chemical transmitter produced by a gland or cells of the body and transported by the bloodstream to the cells and organs on which it has a specific effect. And oversupply or undersupply uh, results in multiple unwanted symptoms. And of course, uh, either one of these can result in significant issues. And many hormonal problems result in emotional challenges and um, difficulties. Uh, one of the um, uh, relationships uh, that I have um, thought about is um, the influence of hormones on the system, uh, potentially in a way in regards to the influence of the Spirit of God on the entire system, including the spiritual health. You know, one of the um, uh, prerequisites to getting an entire outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God uh, we're told, uh, is to be prepared for it. And there's a number of preparation aspects that we've told, been told in regards to this. But there's a statement, and I was trying to find it right before I came. I know it's, uh, I'm doing something uh, right now. It started January 1, but I'm reading through 10 pages a day of the entire nine volume of the testimony series. And uh, I've never read it from cover to cover. But uh, I know it's in one of the previous uh, testimony ones, and I couldn't quite find it to see the quote here. But she actually states that God actually could pour out his spirit on us without having the prerequisites. You think, wow, that would be pretty amazing. But she says it would result in confusion. It would result in animation and all sorts of things, but it would actually not be consistent with truth, not be consistent with complete self-sacrificing love, and there's a reason why he withholds his spirit from us. And I was thinking, this is kind of what happens when our hormones are in excess. <laughs> uh, it can result in all sorts of confusion. It can result in a lot of animation and things, but it can result in, in actually unwanted 
consequences for that. So in his mercy, he limits the pouring out of his spirit because we're not quite ready for it. And uh, this is, uh, of course, something in our daily life, Hope if you stay for session two uh, uh, this afternoon, I think we'll be talking about how uh, in this whole process of, we're speaking about physician burnout and, and dental burnout this afternoon, but one of the solutions of that burnout is actually being prepared fully for the outpouring of the Spirit of God. So there is a parallel of the Holy Spirit and hormones, and of course, if we don't have enough of the Holy Spirit, it's like not having enough hormones either, and we're going to have problems of the undersupply, and we're lacking a lot more of the undersupply in our spiritual life, uh, obviously, uh, than the oversupply, particularly since he prohibits the oversupply of it uh, if we're not ready. So common hormonal and emotional intelligence issues, hypothyroidism, of course, can produce some significant uh, mental health issues. And uh, this is one of the things that I think every psychiatrist is clear about. I remember even years ago, before I learned about all the different causes of depression and anxiety, it wasn't my focus at the time. It was uh, more of the internal medicine, adult diseases. Uh, but uh, when I was um, shadowing psychiatrists, when I wanted to learn a lot more about the psychiatric field, they always mentioned that they ruled out thyroid uh, issues when I was asking about causes. Um, and uh, this, of course, uh, can produce some emotional uh, problems. Hyperthyroidism also produces its own set of emotional problems. And, of course, diabetes and even prediabetes can pr produce emotional issues and, of course, um, low testosterone, hypogonadism, premenstrual syndrome, menopause itself, and adrenal issues, and of course low growth hormone or excess growth hormone. We had an individual in our uh, program just this last year that had some um, hormonal issues related to um, severe um, growth, excess in growth hormone, and acromegaly and uh, some of those uh, issues that uh, resulted, and she had had this going on for about five years before it was diagnosed by, of all people, a nurse practitioner. <laughs> and I'm thinking, wow, she had been to doctors and it took a nurse practitioner to uh, do the right tests to, um, to find this out. And of course, as soon as it was found out, she was referred away from the nurse practitioner uh, to the proper specialist uh, to, uh, to get the, uh, the, the treatment. But the treatment had to be so significant that then she experienced a lot of hormone deficits as a result of what was being done to the pituitary gland on multiple uh, aspects and ended up with a uh, almost near panhypopituitarism. So uh, let's take a look at some of these um, causes of uh, the adrenal issues. Autoimmune disease or Hashimoto's thyroiditis uh, can, of course, produce hypothyroidism. Uh, and uh, hyperthyroidism treatment is one of the major causes of hypothyroidism as well. Uh, the radiation that um, might destroy the, the gland from Graves' disease or um, surgery and other uh, forms of, uh, of treatment. And of course, there can be medi medication causes uh, such as uh, lithium and pituitary disorders or a secondary hypothyroidism, uh, uh, pregnancy, uh, iodine deficiency as well. Of course, we know TSH is the most sensitive test. It takes six weeks to begin to notice a change after proper treatment. 
But T4 and T3, uh, both the um, full as well as the free can be helpful. Uh, but when these are normal, despite a high TSH, of course, we call this subclinical hypothyroidism. And a TSH greater than 3 may mean more antithyroid antibodies. There's been studies showing the correlation there. And a greater chance to develop a full hypothyroidism, uh, even though the TSH, you know, a 4 or 5 might be producing more thyroid, it's not enough, and that's why it's subclinical hypothyroidism. So early Hashimoto's is uh, common, but uh, this is often an overlooked aspect of subclinical hypothyroidism is chronic stress. We have a lot of individuals come through our program that have TSHs of four, five, six, seven, eight. First time, you know, it's been uh, diagnosed as subclinical hypothyroidism, but it is having its effect emotionally. And uh, interestingly, there are some natural therapies that can help with this. Uh, supplementation with tyrosine, which is something that actually we need to make thyroid hormone, it's tyrosine and iodine, uh, can increase norepinephrine in the brain. Of course, tyrosine also has other effects. Tyrosine actually gets turned into two different neurotransmitters that are very important in our brain, dopamine and norepinephrine. And by increasing norepinephrine in the brain, it can induce thyrotropin-releasing hormone neurons to release more uh, thyrotropin-releasing hormone, which acts on the hypothesis to release more thyroid-stimulating hormone. And as a result, synthesis and release of thyroid hormones can actually increase. So sometimes it's just a matter of getting them enough L-tyrosine. And of course, L-tyrosine into the brain is where we need to get this. And a lot of people are getting tyrosine in their diet, but not into their brain because of the blood-brain barrier. This almost steel pipe requires, when it's a large neutral amino acid like tryptophan or tyrosine, it requires carriers to get it across the blood-brain barrier, and it's an insulin-mediated mechanism to get it across, uh, meaning that we have to have carbs. This is why the high-protein, high-fat diet is not very good as far as getting tyrosine into the brain or tryptophan for that matter, and we ended up having brain problems from these, uh, um, you know, even paleo diets or these ketosis diets that have become so popular today uh, and one of the reasons why they're not sustainable long-term. In summary, chronic stress causes behavioral changes and disorders in the neuroendocrine network, and L-tyrosine can relieve or inhibit these changes. So we've had a lot of um, cases. We could go over some of them uh, with you. Uh, where we'll see a TSH of 8. We don't put them on low-dose Synthroid. Uh, we actually will put them first on L-tyrosine, and six weeks later, their TSHs are less than 3, and they're doing um, uh, much uh, better. Uh, other treatments for subclinical hypothyroidism, this was actually a study that we did uh, years ago at the Lifestyle Center of America, where we randomized three groups of community members to either continue their non-exercise routine or get on an aerobic exercise fitness program or an IT fitness program. And the intermittent training fitness program individuals ended up having a nice healthy drop in their TSH as compared with even the other two groups. And so there's something about intermittent training or interval training that produces uh, benefits as far as subclinical hypothyroidism. Of course, there's other foods that are often recommended, like kelp uh, with its iodine. 
I don't recommend it for the most part. Of course, the question is iodine. Of course, too much iodine can cause the thyroid gland to shut down, and too little can be problematic. It's actually um, quite rare that iodine with today the, um, the salt being um, supplemented with it is an issue, uh, although it may be uh, worthwhile to, ch to check. We've had some individuals that avoid salt um, in any food uh, or don't eat any prepared food and avoid it like the plague, and they might have an iodine issue, and they wouldn't necessarily need to take iodine supplements, uh, but even sea plants and seafood are going to be high in it, and green leafy vegetables and strawberries and cranberries. Uh, and then, uh, of course, other treatments can be the actual um, uh, medication, um, which is actually bioidentical in regards to the T4 and T3. Of course, the active hormone uh, being a T3, but T4 converts over to T3. So because of our time limitation, uh, I didn't cover all of the aspects of thyroid. I could have also, I have a whole section on hyperthyroidism as well. And some of those things, if you have some questions afterwards, I, after I have a chance to present um, this material, feel free, and we may be able to, um, uh, to talk about um, more of, the, um, of those aspects. But it's primarily um, exercise and the um, L-tyrosine treatment that a lot of people are unaware of in regards to natural therapies for um, thyroid. Uh, diabetes, of course, is an also an endocrine issue and a hormonal um, issue. And, uh, of course, um, th there's been another term coined for it, diapression, because it often comes with depression. And one of the reasons is the most common form of diabetes is type 2 diabetes, which is insulin resistance. And as I just mentioned, it requires an insulin-mediated mechanism to get enough tryptophan and tyrosine into the brain. So if we are insulin resistant, that can also be an issue in regards to brain chemistry and emotional health. Uh, metabolic uh, syndrome, of course, is prediabetes. Hemoglobin A1C is less than 6.5, but they're still having a, a, a metabolic effect, and we will see higher rates of depression, well-documented even in the prediabetes uh, stage. And of course, the risk factors for uh, type 2 diabetes or obesity and a decrease in physical exercise. Essentially, you're getting more calories in than calories out. And, of course, you have the gene um, as well that's associated with it. Excessive fat intake or excessive sugar intake uh, are also going to be uh, risk factors for the disease. And the mental uh, health effects of diabetes that have been documented, poor memory, as I mentioned, uh, less tyrosine and tryptophan. That means less dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin in brain production because there's less of this in the brain. We actually produce these things in the brain. By the way, uh, we've gotten some people, you know, there's a, a company that now measures these neurotransmitters in the blood. Um, don't get caught up with that because you're, these neurotransmitters in the bloodstream have nothing to do with the neurotransmitters in your brain. And that's because of that blood-brain barrier aspect of things. So now I have patients coming to me saying, my serotonin level is, is low or high, and my norepinephrine or dopamine level is, and that has nothing to do with their brain levels, and you shouldn't be treating 
those type of things in regards to the peripheral circulation. We can get a much better idea of dopamine activity and norepinephrine activity uh, and serotonin activity by doing other tests in the peripheral blood. Uh, and that's a more sophisticated lecture um, to go into that. But we measure those types of things so we can tell them quite precisely in regards to the activity of these uh, neurotransmitters in their brain, uh, but it's not by measuring them uh, peripherally. Uh, and of course, one of the reasons New START also helps uh, depression uh, in diabetics or, or pre-diabetics is simply due to the fact that we are improving insulin resistance uh, in our, our New START program. And by the way, I just um, saw Dr. Um, Guthrie's new book on, uh, uh, that just came out last uh, month on uh, plant. Uh, what is the name of his book? I didn't memorize the name of his book yet, but it's. Uh, oh, he's here. He's here. Go ahead. <laughs> what is it, Dr. Guthrie? Okay. Eat plants, feel whole. That's W H O L E. And uh, that is, um, of course, I'm, I'm sure he covers some of the um, uh, central nervous system effects. And in order to feel whole, uh, you have to have those effects on the, on the central nervous system. But it was also nice to see some of the uh, comments uh, he got even at the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, where the head of the Diabetes Institute is now saying we really need to do a pivotal shift in recommending a plant-based diet. And of course, a plant-based diet will help you in regards to your diabetes control, and it will also help you in regards to the activity of those three neurotransmitters that we just mentioned in there um, due to the fact that uh, we are getting the insulin uh, sensitivity there. So I wanted to spend a little bit of time on the hormonal issues, and then uh, if we have time, on the adrenal issues as well. But female hormonal issues, one of the reasons why emotional issues in regards to depression, anxiety, are more, uh, definitely more common in females than in males, are, are not just the plight of females, but also the hormones. Um, and uh, there are more hormonal issues that can occur. Premenstrual dysphoric disorder is quite common. Um, and uh, premenstrual syndrome is even more common. Uh, postpartum uh, depression, uh, also uh, very common. In fact, two-thirds of women are going to have a significant downturn in their mood within two weeks of having a baby. They won't necessarily be diagnosed with postpartum depression. About 20% are going to end up with actually postpartum depression, but they still will have a significant downturn. And, of course, polycystic ovary syndrome, which also produces its own set of hormonal issues, as well as this whole issue of menopause, where the ovaries, um, you know, essentially um, uh, shut down and, um, uh, at the age of uh, menopause and afterwards. Premenstrual syndrome, some of the symptoms, anxiety, depression, mood swings, crying, irritability, anger, food cravings, insomnia, social withdrawal, poor focus, changes in libido occur, and three out of uh, four women will have experienced at least some symptoms of PMS. 
uh, at least at some point in their reproductive uh, life, so that's pretty high. Uh, PMDD, the difference between PMS and PMDD is PMDD occurs regularly, every month, where PMS can be a little more intermittent. Uh, joint and muscle pain uh, can occur. Headache, fatigue, weight gain and fluid retention, abdominal bloating, acne flare-ups, and uh, constipation, sometimes alternating with diarrhea, uh, some of the irritable bowel um, syndrome um, issues. And regards to uh, PMDD, these PMS symptoms, as I mentioned, occur monthly. And now this is, uh, when it occurs monthly on a regular basis, this is 8% of the female population. So let's take a look at some of the uh, underlying causes of PMS and PMDD. Of course, cyclic changes in hormones uh, occur with sensitivity often to a woman's own progesterone. This is one of the reasons why a woman can be pretty good the first part of her phase particularly on the third day of menstruation to ovulation is when her emotional balance seems to be the same for those that are prone to PMS and PMDD. And then as soon as ovulation hits, with the uh, progesterone levels now going up significantly, there seems to be a sensitivity uh, to their own progesterone uh, in a way that uh, brings about um, these uh, symptoms. And so, uh, and if inflammation is present, these symptoms are definitely more likely. So if we see C-reactive protein elevation or SED rate elevation, and what's ideal, you know, don't look at the normals on those two inflammatory markers. Your C-reactive protein for a healthy woman should be less than one, and your SED rate should be less than five. So anything greater than that actually is showing some uh, signs of inflammation. Uh, and... Uh, when serotonin activity is lower in the brain, these symptoms also come about in a more ready um, state. And so, uh, and there are certain things that can lower that activity and imbalance um, is, um, our brain chemistry, as we'll talk about here in a little bit. And of course, if you have depression uh, already, you're gonna be more prone to PMS and PMDD. Uh, and another um, issue that is um, surfacing and becoming, um, it um, actually hasn't been, uh, I should say, publicized in, enough in the endocrinology literature, uh, but I think it, it is starting to, and it's, you're going to see a lot more of it, is in regards to the handling of metals, um, what we call a metal metabolism disorder, which is something that we screen for. Uh, in our programs. An indication that you have this is if you have a lower ceruloplasmin. Ceruloplasmin is the protein that binds on to copper, and if that ceruloplasmin is low, you're much more likely to have a free copper greater than 25%. Now, this is something well known in the gastroenterology literature because of Wilson's disease. Wilson's disease is a, is a genetic disease of a low ceruloplasmin, but it's a disease of copper toxicity. And so you end up, and of course it's one of those classic board question issues because people understand Wilson's disease, Kaiser Fleischer rings, this is copper toxicity, but their copper levels are extremely low in their bloodstream. And uh, they're low because the ceruloplasmin is so low. Uh, but if you look at their free copper, their free copper levels are very high. And this is what's causing all of the issues, including the the um, emotional issues that are very common in those with Wilson's disease. 
but you don't have to have Wilson's disease in order to have free copper uh, excess. And most people aren't going to have Wilson's disease. Their ceruloplasms aren't less than five. Uh, they're up there maybe 15 to 20 or in the low 20s. And they have copper excess. And this can bring about um, the PMS and PMDD. We also look at zinc-copper ratios. We like to see that ratio less than one of, I should say, copper-zinc ratios. And if the copper-zinc ratio is over 1.2, this can also be a cause. Now, I should caution you in regards to ordering these labs. Uh, if you are going to order them and start working up patients with PMS and PMDD, which I would encourage you to do, that they, ha they can't be ordered in a regular hospital laboratory system, and they can't be ordered in a typical laboratory because it requires specialized tubing. The, the tubes themselves can have metal in it. Even the rubber, the red top, can have some metal in it. And so you want to be accurate in taking a look at this. And the only national laboratory company that's very particular about doing this at this point in time is LabCorp. So if you're going to use a national laboratory company um, and make sure the drawing is done right, it's going to be different tubes, specialized metal-free tubes to actually take a look at this. So at ovulation, as we all know, ovaries produce more progesterone. And progesterone is converted to allopregnanolone or sometimes abbreviated aloe. What does aloe do? It can bind to GABA receptors. Now, GABA is, of course, uh, something that our brain makes, GABA aminobutyric acid. It binds onto receptors so that we can actually calm ourselves when there's stressful situations going on. And we don't accelerate our, our, our emotional distress into panic or things that actually make us dysfunctional. PMDD actually mimics, if you take a look at the symptoms of premenstrual dysphoric disorder, it actually is virtually identical to the symptoms of benzo withdrawal. What are benzos doing? Benzos are filling those GABA receptors. And, uh, and so when we withdraw from them, of course, the problem if you're on benzos for more than 30 days, your brain actually quits making GABA. That's why these benzos were actually only designed to be utilized very short term for an acute situation. But unfortunately, they're, they're prescribed a lot by primary care clinics and emergency rooms, and people get on them thinking, wow, I feel at peace with the world. Uh, this is what I had. I, I, all along, I didn't realize I had a Xanax deficiency. And so uh, they think now they're at peace with the world, but of course, Xanax actually suppresses the frontal lobe of the brain. And now when you make even less GABA, which if you're on it for 30 days, you're going to make virtually none, then when you're taken off of it, your anxiety is tenfold worse than when you got on the, the benzos. And of course, this is one of the things that uh, we've published in the scientific literature. You'll be able to see us in the Journal of Addiction Medicine in regards to um, we actually have at least to date, um, you know, the most successful program in getting people off of benzos. Uh, and of course, in our last program, we had people on uh, Ativan, um, Xanax, high-dose Valium, uh, those sorts of things. And amazingly, in 10 days, not only are they off of this stuff, but their anxiety scores are 10% of what they were on them. And of course, we're utilizing a comprehensive approach uh, and it, it is uh, something that um, the world hasn't really caught up on. The typical person, when you go to 
try to get off your Xanax, they'll say, don't ever try to get off it uh, because they realize uh, how bad it can be. But PMDD mimics that because the aloe is, is actually filling that GABA receptor instead of GABA. It's actually competing with it, and I think that's why we're seeing that association. Possible defect with luteal phase production or luteal phase GABA receptors might also be a contributing factor. And also, aloe can go down in response to chronic stress. But after the luteal phase, uh, the ovaries also decrease their production of estrogen. And estrogen withdrawal symptoms uh, also can mimic PMDD symptoms. And of course, one of the reasons why sometimes PMDD symptoms come about at ovulation as well because of the actual uh, estrogen withdrawal. Now, in regards to diet and PMS, consumption of carbohydrate-rich, protein-poor meals during the late luteal phase of the menstrual cycle has been shown to improve it significantly. Uh, depression, tensure, tension, anger, confusion, sadness, fatigue, alertness, and calmness scores uh, among patients with premenstrual syndrome were all improved by changing their diet to essentially a plant-based diet. Carbohydrate-rich, protein-poor. Protein-poor doesn't mean not enough protein. It just means protein-poor in comparison with the typical American's consumption of protein. And so it's still adequate protein. But notice that p-value is less than 0.01. And so a dietary change is one of the things that can help out uh, significantly. And of course, we model a plant-based diet in our uh, program when they come to us. Postpartum uh, depression, as I mentioned, 20% of the US population experience. Edinburgh postnasal depression uh, a scale is um, often used. And these are the questions in this scale. Are you having trouble sleeping? Do you find you're exhausted most of the time? Do you notice a decrease in your appetite? Do you worry about little things that never used to bother you? Do you wonder if you'll ever have time to yourself again? Do you think your children would be better off without you? Do you worry that your partner will get tired of you feeling this way? Do you snap at your partner and children over everything? Do you think everyone else is a better mother than you? Uh, by the way, these, these questions are pretty common for those that come to our program. Uh, of course, you know, they have depression, and, uh, and many of them have had postpartum depression. But this, these um, uh, symptoms can persist uh, for quite a while postpartum. Do you cry over the slightest thing? Do you no longer enjoy the things you used to enjoy? Do you isolate yourself from your friends and neighbors? Do you fear leaving the house or being alone? Are you having anxiety attacks or unexplained anger or difficulty concentrating? Do you think something else is wrong with you or your marriage? Do you feel like you will always feel this way and never get better? Uh, these are uh, very common thoughts uh, for those undergoing PMDD. We had an individual in our program that suffered. Um, she has two children and were, were suffering these symptoms even two years postpartum. And uh, she came to our, our program, uh, experienced remarkable healing, severe depression down to no depression in 10 days. And her emotional intelligence went below average to up to 156, which is you know, at the top five percentile of the nation uh, in, uh, in 10 days. Uh, and she, um, of course, got not, was not only getting the biochemical help for this, but also getting the CBT help in regards to being able to rationalize 
um, a, a better approach. But she certainly thought about ending her life a lot because she thought that her actual husband and children would be better off without her. Absolutely false. Uh, and, um, and one that she now understands as false. So what are some of the natural therapies that we can use for this? Well, as we mentioned, serotonin, improving serotonin can help symptoms of PMDD and, PM, uh, and PMS. And light is needed, bright enough light, through the eyes for adequate serotonin production. And it's possibly best upon or even before awakening. Uh, this is one of the reasons why in our program, uh, this girl, along with other patients, within five minutes of awakening, they're being exposed to light therapy. Now at 6 a.m. at this time of year, there's no light outside. And so we don't take them outside. We actually have them exposed to a light box. We used to utilize primarily the one made by Philips. It does a great job. But uh, recently, technology has improved, and we now have wearable light therapy. How do they wear it? It's actually through glasses. And uh, these glasses actually look very cool, uh, and uh, the patients love uh, wearing them. And it actually is simulating the same wavelength of the blue sky, and it's bright enough that they're actually resetting their body clock that's resetting their circadian rhythm, which a circadian rhythm hit is introduced, obviously, in, in the postpartum era because you're having to wake up every two hours to feed this baby. Uh, and uh, it is, um, as they reset their body clock in seven days, that circadian rhythm hit's going to be gone. So it's effective for partum and postpartum depression. Works best for those who are also fatigued or have sleep issues, especially hypersomnia, which um, this girl had that was in her program. Um, she was um, sleeping quite a bit, not necessarily sleeping through the night, but sleeping a lot also in the daytime and also having appetite control issues. So white light can also help, 10,000 lux, but it requires a lot less lux for the blue light. And, and a lot of people wonder, well, you know, is it going to cause macular degeneration uh, like, you know, very bright light or ultraviolet light can? And actually, no, your risk of of having any eye issues related to this is far less than actually going outside uh, on a bright day with blue sky because the lux is a lot less uh, in, re uh, in regards to that. The white light is where we had more of the issues because when it's white, we need to overpower. Essentially, you're getting a, the, the entire spectrum, and so you need a brighter amount to produce the positive effect. And so that's the advantage of utilizing uh, just the blue light. So we have them use it same time every morning. If they're short of sleep, they actually can go back to sleep after they utilize it. And so it's important for them to get it at the same time every day. And if they are short of sleep, go ahead and sleep right after you get it. But that way you can stay on that same circadian rhythm. You don't have this continual delay of the circadian rhythm that tends to occur. And this is one of the prime uh, therapies for PMS and PMDD. And if you're using a box, you don't want to look right at the box because it's not actually the cones in the eye that are helping to produce the serotonin. It's the rods. And your rods are more your peripheral vision. So you offset it by about 20 degrees. You can still read your devotions. You can do things like this. 
uh, and you know, carried around with you. The light box itself is transportable as you're doing things, and that will give even a better response than looking straight at the light. Other factors in postpartum depression, genetic issues related to copper-zinc ratios, as I mentioned, and the ability to handle copper, family support after birth, and particularly two weeks after birth. Most of that family support comes within a week after having that baby, but it's actually almost more crucial to get that family support post two weeks. And so uh, uh, they often need that support right away too, but if you can orchestrate some family support to help the young mother even two weeks afterwards, that is beneficial. Physical exercise also is a key aspect of preventing or treating PMS or PMDD and nutrition to make adequate serotonin. What is that? Uh, that would be a whole other presentation on tryptophan, getting tryptophan with carbs without the competing large neutral amino acids to get that into the brain, and that can also uh, help. And then the spiritual aspect, the overall meaning and purpose, and recognizing the important role of the mother in this last program, dealing with this particular patient. Uh, uh, the uh, evidence uh, was given inspirationally and otherwise that actually the mother's job in raising a young one is actually superior to a president of a country or even the king on their throne, and it's really superior to any occupation out there. And many times mothers feel that this, since they're doing things like changing diapers and they're uh, you know, uh, just caught in a lot of, of flurry of activity to be able to keep up and stay ahead of this young one, uh, that anybody can do it. Uh, and this, this is a low job. Uh, but in reality, because of all of the other factors that go into mothering besides those things, including those things, but in the tender way that it's done, we're actually forming that baby to have healthy attachment. In fact, that's one of the things we're going to be talking about, our Emotional Intelligence Summit in February, and Weimar, we have one every year. But this one's going to be centering in on attachment disorders. Attachment disorders are at an all-time high, and there's different types of attachment disorders. And attachment disorders often um, start uh, more so today than ever before in the first five years of life. Uh, and in regards to attachment issues with the mother, um, et cetera, and, uh, and so uh, once um, she realized how important her job was and she was given the tools for good emotional health, she became enthused and excited. So uh, her, um, her husband was thrilled to receive her uh, this week uh, in regards to that, um, that new mother uh, that came about as a result of 10 days uh, being in her program. So uh, polycystic uh, ovary uh, syndrome, 8 to 20% of females uh, can have this uh, polycystic ovary. Uh, irregular missed periods from not ovulating, weight gain or obesity in 80% of individuals that have this. And then hirsutism in 70%, unwanted hair growth. And then associated fatigue, decreased fertility, acne, uh, pelvic pain that also can occur with heavy bleeding and sleep problems. And so with this being so high in females, we really need to know <clears throat> how to treat it. And of course, another key feature is insulin resistance. 
So once again, exercise, plant-based diet, these types of things will be important. So the Rotterdam Diagnostic Triad, having two of three, uh, not ovulating at least some months, hyperandrogenism, uh, either in clinical signs or lab tests, and polycystic ovaries, not typically cysts, but multiple resting antral follicles, um, is uh, what we look for. But those with polycystic ovaries have three times the rates of major depression and five times the rates of anxiety. So we see more of a predominance of uh, PCOS uh, in our program as a result of that in reproductive females. So, of course, the lab tests, high LH levels are one of the classic uh, parts, luteinizing hormone, and insufficient FSH to stimulate the granulosa cells. This is why uh, they have such long uh, times in between periods. And insulin resistance will result in insulinemia. Uh, and then there also tends to be uh, higher levels of androgens. Androgens get converted to estrogen by aromatase in body tissues. And if the sex hormone binding globulin is low, total testosterone is high, and DHEA sulfate is high, you're going to have system-wide hyperandrogenism, and you will have the hirsutism associated uh, with those things. So how do we um, treat this? At least 60 minutes of aerobic exercise daily is crucial in improving the insulin resistance. Just like a diabetic, they need exercise every day. And of course, exercise works just like insulin. And uh, an important part of that is going to be putting them on a no or extremely low sugar diet, low in fat, high in antioxidants, that a plant-based diet uh, can help out with and to also, of course, get them to lose 5% of their body weight. Often we'll, we'll see those insulin levels completely normalize uh, with that and the symptoms get better. Uh, and that would be, of course, if they're overweight or obese. If the lifestyle changes are not made even before they develop diabetes, metformin has been shown to be helpful, but not as helpful as the lifestyle changes. And of course, the oral contraceptives and spironolactone are often used to help um, the hirsutism. And then, of course, uh, light therapy is key for this as well. Studies have shown it can help with depression. It improves libido. There's a muscle building and strengthening effect. When women with long and irregular menstrual cycles are exposed to bright light every day in the morning as part of that circadian rhythm, the cycles often regularize. So this is a very simple uh, way of being able to uh, help um, these uh, patients, and it's often a light therapy. In fact, I was just thinking with all of the benefits we're now seeing, even in the GI world, with irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, irritable bowel syndrome we now know is a circadian rhythm disorder of the gut. That's why we have all this alter alterations in uh, and constipation and diarrhea and this uh, going back and forth, and we're seeing light therapy actually help irritable bowel syndrome. It can also help resistant inflammatory bowel disease. Crohn's disease isn't responding to anything. You give them light therapy and it helps. So I'm thinking of writing a little book called Let There Be Light uh, and uh, talk about how even God gave us light before he gave us nutrition. <laughs> Uh, in regards to the advantages. And of course, uh, the darkness is also helpful. We don't want light all the time. If we have light 24-7, uh, it's, uh, it's a problem. 
And that's why before that became a problem on the fourth day, uh, he made the sun and the moon and, and set that cycle in, in order. Yes? Yeah, for all of these, it's the, uh, it's the same uh, blue wavelength. Red, um, the red wavelength actually has more of a placebo type effect, the infrared. It can be used for certain types of conditions, but it's, um, it's the blue light that seems to be the beneficial aspect. And it, as mentioned, the same benefit of the blue sky. Now, a cloudy day can also produce its benefit because you can get 10,000 lux in a cloudy day. Uh, but you have to have longer exposure and you have to be out in it more in order to be able to get that benefit. So again, the light therapy, how is it working in regards to PCOS? It's thought to be due to changes in luteinizing hormone production in the pituitary gland uh, that is producing uh, its benefit. And then in regards to actually uh, menopausal symptoms, of course, you know you may be experiencing menopause when you're the right age and having irregular periods or skip periods or earlier cycles. It can even speed up earlier. And then other symptoms, vaginal dryness, hot flashes, chills, night sweats, thinning hair, insomnia, or early morning awakening. Early morning awakening is very common in those undergoing menopause. They'll be able to go to sleep, but they can't stay asleep. And they're waking up too early and can't get back to sleep. Mood changes, weight gain, and, met and metabolism slowing down, dry skin, and loss of breast uh, fullness. But, of course, there's other more serious complications, and that is the cardiovascular disease risk goes up. HDL will drop. Estrogen has been protecting them uh, from that. And women, of course, we now know have the same level of cardiovascular disease as men. It just occurs 10 years later uh, as a, a result of the protection that occurs during their reproductive cycle. And, of course, osteoporosis is one of the serious complications that can occur as well and uh, urinary incontinence is more common, and sexual function also is significantly affected. And as mentioned, weight gain is more common. And of course, depression and anxiety is more common. Uh, once you, uh, if you haven't had any, you might begin to suffer from it if you have some other hits on board, but you've been able to control it once menopause occurs. And then of course, memory loss has also been associated with particularly estrogen um, deficits in regards to uh, menopause. And this may be one of the reasons, there's probably more reasons than this, but some of you are aware with this rapid rise in dementia that has occurred in our country, dementia is affecting women twice as common as men. So it is much more common in women to lose their memory when they age than it is men. And part of it could actually be due to this um, lack of estrogen. So why don't doctors prescribe estrogen and progesterone after menopause like they used to? It's because of the increase in the risk of cardiovascular disease, stroke, and heart attack. But it turns out this risk is only increased for those who are typical Americans. And that is uh, because estrogen enhances blood clotting. Uh, we all know this, when the first oral contraceptives came out, it was too high a dose, and we had the blood clots, and we had the pulmonary emboli, uh, and things of that, and it was, of course, killing women in their reproductive years, and uh, then they lowered uh, those hormones that were being given to lower that effect. But estrogen does enhance 
blood clotting. And so if you have a reason for your blood to clot, in other words, if you have a significant narrowing in your coronary arteries and estrogen is on board, you're actually more likely to develop that stroke or heart attack. But it does not increase the risk of complications in all women. If you have clean blood vessels, you're actually not going to increase your risk of this with just typical bioidentical estrogen. So who is not at risk for hormone replacement therapy? If a woman has no hypertension, if they're not a smoker, if they're not sedentary, if they don't have elevation in cholesterol, if they have no obesity or metabolic syndrome, and if they're on a plant-based diet, um, the benefits in the vast majority of these women are going to outweigh the risks. And some people will say, well, wait a minute, what about breast cancer? And uh, it turns out uh, that estrogen fuels estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, but it is not the underlying cause of it. And so if you have estrogen uh, receptor positive breast cancer, you wouldn't want to utilize estrogen. But estrogen receptor positive breast cancer is primarily a lifestyle breast cancer caused by, a, uh, in, in, in essence, by a lot of these other unhealthy types of lifestyles. And uh, so a person on this who doesn't have that, and of course it's also the type of uh, breast cancer that is most amenable to treatment as well, uh, but um, it's something where they would still need to be screened for it. Uh, but the benefits of hormone replacement, I think in the vast majority are gonna outweigh that risk. What are the benefits? Better sleep, improved bone density, less depression and anxiety, libido, vaginal dryness, um, and an improved overall sense of being youthful uh, or feeling youthful, improved cognition as well uh, in regards to the memory and possibly less risk of dementia. Interestingly, postmenopausal women sleep better with hormone replacement. Uh, this was 15,700 women uh, that were being looked at in a nice controlled or comparison trial. And women who had used low-dose transdermal patches, this would be bioidentical estrogen, you can get it in Vivel or Minivel, uh, to get their hormone replacement had also almost precisely the same risk of stroke. In fact, very what? Very slightly less. This was taking a look at the entire population group. This wasn't talking about just the healthy group. So, if you had just that healthy group, it would be like no risk compared with women who use no HRT. And of course, one of the reasons why I'm also passionate about this is because I have the advantages of the biblical evidence. For the first um, uh, thousand or 2,000 years of this world's history, we, women reproduced well into their hundreds. In other words, their ovaries did not shut down uh, when they were 50. They continued on, and we, you can see that in the Genesis record on how old these women were in having babies. After the flood, the lives were shortened, and of course, I think God realized it's best for what type of mothers to raise their own children? Biological, if at all possible. And of course, we know the reasons for that in regards to even attachment and other uh, uh, things that play a role in regards to that. We're gonna be talking about that at the EQ Summit. And if they're healthy enough to do so, and they're healthy women, these are the best people to be raising uh, their children. And uh, God did not want 60-year-old women today to be having children 
when the average life expectancy is going to be 70. Uh, and so uh, that would not have been good for these kids and the upheaval and the problems that it would cause. And so in order to be able to help that situation, he just stopped the ovary production uh, to save the effects of this happening. So ovaries shut down to prevent women from having children in their late 50s, 60s, 70s, and so a child is not orphaned from his mother. And so I think now that we know these things, we can have the potential advantages without the disadvantages. It doesn't mean because you're on hormone replacement that you're going to have a baby now. Uh, your ovaries still aren't going to ovulate. <laughs> uh, and so you can still uh, prevent um, the, the, the child from being uh, born, not you prevent it. The Lord has prevented that from happening. Uh, but uh, you can have some of those advantages of the female hormones that our antediluvians benefited from uh, for um, thousands of years. So become healthy enough. My um, um, recommendation to women in their reproductive years is become healthy enough to have far more benefits than risk of hormone replacement therapy. And transdermal bioidentical estrogen, it doesn't take much. This is only a fourth of what you make in your reproductive years. So this is, uh, and this is your full 0.1 milligram dosage. So I don't think they need to have the same amount of hormones as they did in their reproductive years. Uh, I think the benefit-risk ratio would be better even at this lower point. Uh, but, you know, changing it every Sunday morning, Wednesday evening, every three and a half days can do this. But I also recommend that they don't wait too long. I have women in their 70s coming, learning this and saying, now can you put me on estrogen? And, of course, they've already gone through the estrogen withdrawal. They don't have hot flashes anymore. Their body is already completely adjusted over. And the vast majority of cases, we can do other things to help their emotional health out. Uh, and so we'll do those things first. Uh, but there have been rare instances where even a comprehensive program doesn't help. And then, of course, we have to warn them when they start estrogen, they're going to feel like a teenager again emotionally. In other words, uh, because the hormones are starting again, they're going to kind of act like teenage girls sometimes. And they don't, um, and some of them don't want to have to go through that again. <laughs> and so they say, uh, no, it's okay. I won't go through that. So that's why it needs to be done um, early enough. Let's see, I think I've got two minutes uh, left, and uh, so we're not going to necessarily be able to go to the adrenals. Let's go to testosterone then in men. Increase in testosterone levels in healthy levels are associated with increased muscle mass and strength, lower osteoporosis, increased libido, benefits to cognition. Testosterone reduces formation of beta amyloid protein from the amyloid precursor protein. And this may be one of the reasons why men are also more protected from dementia than women. And of course, men with higher testosterone levels over time experience less Alzheimer's disease. Positive associations between testosterone level and spatial cognitive function and memory for verbal and visual stimuli in older men, improve creativity, improve persistence, and more courage. And of course, we all know that some of the greatest physical and mental accomplishments have been obtained in single men before marriage, as you will know that they have higher testosterone levels than what happens when they actually they get married. Body composition and structure also improves with increased testosterone. Um, and, of course, lean body mass um, will inc increase and fat mass decrease, increase in serum bone markers, and, of course, other advantages as well, even in regarding athletic precision. 
It's one of the reasons why um, we don't see female baseball players. Baseball, you don't have to you necessarily be of mighty strength at all. You just have to have reflexes and precision, and you just have to line up the bat with the ball. When I was growing up, I thought, why can't females do this as well as males? It doesn't require strength, and they can have precision as well. Uh, but it's very clear that you need that testosterone to have that type of precision when it's a 95-mile-an-hour fastball and it's curving and it's going down, and uh, not having that testosterone available just um, uh, makes it impossible for them to compete on the MLB level. Uh, and, of course, speed and endurance are also improved and improvement in sleep, and there's vascular and endocrine-positive effects. So lo- causes of low T or low testosterone... There's many of them here that are listed on the screen, but a couple of them that I'm going to highlight, the second to the bottom, too frequent or superstimulatory sex. Um, Superstimulatory sex is having sex not by natural design. So this is not natural intercourse. And uh, this is what we call uh, superstimulatory Uh, is the term that's utilized in the medical literature. This would include all forms of sodomy and those type of things. They are going to actually lower your testosterone levels and significantly lower your androgen receptors. And this is one of the things that people that are on these high-T clinics that are, um, you know, basically um, making money off of these low-T commercials for men having all these symptoms of low testosterone are not telling them if they would just quit masturbating or quit whatever they're doing in regards to sex and do it very infrequently, their testosterone levels can come up and their androgen receptors can come up. So for often for men, we're actually recommending they go on a 90-day reboot. No masturbation, no orgasm, even if they're in a marriage if they're going Um, if they're doing it too much. And what is too much? Uh, Too much is definitely more than every four days, and particularly in an older man, it should be about once a week. I'm giving the time out in the end. Uh, We are about done. And so um, I was going to go through the problems with testosterone shots or exogenous testosterone. This is not the solution. It might help some of the things, but it's going to cause significant problems. But interestingly, Light therapy helps the testosterone level as well. Light therapy will increase the luteinizing hormone and double testosterone output in regards to getting that light, particularly uh, first thing in the morning. And these are other advantages as well in bringing up the T levels. Well, I hope this has been helpful and given you some more ideas on how we can help people hormonally and also in regards to their brain chemistry. And even though we are out of time, we are out of time, so you are all free to leave. But if there's anyone who wants to ask a question before the next uh, lecture begins, feel free to raise your hands. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <clears throat> wondering if uh, bright light therapy would um, be useful for a newborn baby to also um, reset its circadian rhythm. Yeah, good question. In regards to newborn babies, since it can be safe on the lower lux, could that be helpful? Yes, it can, but I don't know of any studies that have been done yet. Uh, And of course, I'm not a neonatal pediatrician, but if I were, that's one of the things that I'd be trying to design and, and see if that could help. Yes. What light therapy? Uh, 
Yeah, we use we we use either the Philips uh, light box or we use the wearable uh, blue light glasses. And uh, we actually, if you want to see those glasses, we've got uh, we've got a model at our booth. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.